Well, hello, friends, and welcome to another Equip podcast. This is a short recording where we go back over what we looked at on the weekend, and this might be helpful for you if you happen to miss our Equip class on Sunday, or if you just want to revise what we learned. And uh, along the way, I'll give a few sort of bonus reflections as well. So if you are engaging with this stuff for the second time, then there'll be something new for you as well. Now on Sunday, we looked at two main issues. Uh, The first is the biblical canon. How is it that the church settled on the, uh, particularly the 27 books of the New Testament as the the closed list of books that uh, we should use today? And then we also looked at a second issue, which is the installation of Emperor Constantine. So first, the biblical canon. We looked at last week how Gnosticism threatened the early church. And one of the examples of that was the Gospel of Thomas. Had a whole lot of strange sayings that were attributed to Jesus, supposedly secret sayings written by the Apostle Thomas. And we saw how Clearly, that couldn't have been the case. But it's worth asking the question, why shouldn't the Gospel of Thomas be considered part of Scripture? I wonder how you'd answer that question. Perhaps we'd go to things like, well, there's good evidence to think that the Gospel of Thomas was probably written towards the end of the 2nd century, maybe even the beginning of the 3rd century. And so that's obviously not the time that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are writing their Gospels. It's obviously also not the time that Thomas himself was alive. So it clearly couldn't actually have been written by the Apostle Thomas. So there's one reason. Another is that it doesn't cohere with the rest of Scripture. It has certainly a, a different ring to it compared to the other Gospels and the books of the New Testament. And some things just flat out contradict the gospel, and flat out contradict uh, the rest of God's revelation. We might also say that it's just not useful. Uh, These are supposedly secret sayings rather than public sayings or eyewitness testimonies to the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So how helpful is it to hear something that Jesus wouldn't have intended for the church to actually know? So these kind of, of questions around who wrote it and at what time Does it fit with the rest of scripture and is it actually useful for the church? Were some of the reasons why the gospel of Thomas was not considered part of scripture. And these are the sort of things we need to think about when we consider why include the books that we do have. And this became a very live question for the church in the middle of the second century. So in the 140s, there's a man named Marcion. Uh, He's the the son of a a Christian bishop who moved to Rome and and settled there. He became wealthy. He was a significant contributor contributor to the church, so had all the hallmarks of someone that you'd love to be part of your church. But Marcion fell under the spell of Gnostic teachers, and it made him uh, doubt a lot of what was in the Bible. So what he ended up doing was taking out everything in the Bible that disagreed with the somewhat Gnostic point of view that he'd come to. He believed that the Old Testament God and the New Testament God were actually two different gods. And so he got rid of the Old Testament because he didn't like that version of of God, that understanding of God. 
And he also got a lot of, uh, got rid of a lot of the New Testament that had anything to do with Jewish references or at times miracles or any references to monotheism, to there being only one God. In essence, he was only left with parts of Luke, none of the other Gospels, and about 10 of Paul's letters, <clears throat> which he still edited down anyway. Uh, in essence, Marcion tore up the Bible, questioning what books should actually be there. And the church was then prompted to respond, well, why do we use the books that we currently have? And this is part of developing what we call the canon, the accepted books of the New Testament. Now, you might have heard that it was a council in the 4th century, so well into the 300s, that decided the books of the Bible. And that's simply not true. What I want to quickly talk through is that there were actually four phases of settling on the canon of Scripture, and Marcion has a part to play in those phases. It's well before the 3rd century and any councils actually meet. The first phase is uh, the Bible going from oral form to written form. And this probably happens in the course of uh, 30 years or so, maybe 40, 50, basically between, <coughs> excuse me, between uh, the resurrection of Jesus in about 33 AD and then the writing of Mark's gospel in probably the late 50s AD. And what you've got there is uh, a lot of oral tradition, uh, oral sayings of Jesus have been passed on between people without necessarily writing them down. These biographies of, of what happened in Jesus' life and uh, what was happening in the early church in the case of Acts, these things are passed around and not always written down. But it's worth remembering that in the ancient world, people's memories were much better for things like this because generally they didn't write a lot down. While there's these oral traditions being passed around, some things are being written down. So we have very early creeds, for example. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 probably records one of these. And then we also have certainly the, the Gospels, once they're written and sort of in common distribution, being used by the early church. For example, Polycarp quotes Ephesians 4.26 as scripture, and Justin Martyr records that the Gospels were read every Sunday in church assemblies alongside the Old Testament prophets. So there's good reason to suggest that in this transition from oral history to written Gospels and even Paul's writings, that the church is, is sort of selecting, or rather Christians are, are selecting what is it that's worth writing down? What is it that's worth sharing with the church in written form? And these writings were generally recognised as authority for the church. That's why they were read out on a Sunday. All of this takes place largely in the first century, so it's before you even reach the, the 100s. But then we reach phase two, which is a limited canon. All well and good to decide what should be written down, but of the writings... What should be considered inspired by God, helpful for the church? What should be our, our final authority for faith and life and practice and our thinking about God? 
well, this is where Marcion comes in and, and really pushes the church to make some big decisions about these things uh, because he, of course, is rejecting a lot of the Bible. And what we know from history is that the church really begins to discuss this stuff in the 100s following Marcion. We have uh, one example, which is the Muratorian Fragment. Uh, this is a historical document from about 175 that mentions a lot of the books that we now have in our New Testament. It's not completely the same as what we have today, which shows that the process is still kind of going on. It's not yet a closed canon that's all sealed up. It's a limited canon that still is undergoing some discussion and some change. But scholar F.F. F. Bruce notes that in 140 to 150 AD, uh, a collection of writings was accepted as authoritative, which was virtually identical with our New Testament. So it's worth focusing on the fact that there was very broad consensus at this time. And this happens about the same time as Marcion is doing his stuff. What's really sad about Marcion, just by the way, is that the guy obviously had a, a strong missionary heart. He ends up uh, being ex excommunicated by the church, and rightly so, because of his heresy. But he ends up going then and, and planting all of these false churches that follow his false beliefs. He's very passionate about what he's discovered. And so it's a sad thing that he was hoodwinked by Gnosticism, and probably also a, a warning to us not to get uh, hoodwinked by any false teaching ourselves. Even people with the right heart can be used to do great evil against the gospel if they're corrupted by false teaching. So there's the first two phases. I'll quickly just go back over the, the, the next two. Uh, in phase three, we see the canon just sort of becoming more settled as a closed canon. Uh, there's still some disagreements about a couple of the books, but they're used in a lot of churches like James. There's some disagreement about James and Jude and Second Peter. They're still widely acknowledged in news, just still some question marks about them. And then by the time you get to the councils of, of the fourth century, the canon is, is well and truly settled and the councils really are just putting their stamp on it. And this is phase four. It's just recognition of a closed canon. They're not writing down the list and saying to the churches, here are the books you have to use. They're saying, well, here are the church's opinions on what the books should be used anyway. Like they're already using these books in their, their Sunday worship. They're already treating these books as authoritative and not the other books. So let's, let's just record that and ratify it. And that happens right at the end of the fourth century. So as a bit of a, an application of that, if you ever hear a non-Christian say to you something like, oh, it was only the councils in the fourth century long after Jesus that decided, you know, which books should be in the New Testament. You can say, well, no, they didn't. Christians used the books of the New Testament for hundreds of years before the councils met. And the councils just recognized what churches were doing and wrote it down. We'll be looking more at uh, councils and creeds next week, where we meet uh, a colorful cast of, of new characters who get into some huge debates about this stuff. But sort of as a, a bit of a reflection on this, uh, it's worth considering that the Bible is our book. We don't have a different book. But this collection, this library of 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, this is our book. And it's easy to shift to other things that the church should take as its authority. Maybe culture, you know, we've got to get with the times. Maybe tradition, the sense of what we've always done. Maybe what other churches are or aren't doing that looks fruitful or unfruitful. 
or maybe even what a significant Christian teacher might say. It's also easy to shift the church's mission. You know, we're called to believe the word and mature in the word and bring the word to the world. And there are other good things we might get involved in that Christians and churches can do, but that aren't the central mission of the church. For example, social justice things, material help for the needy, improving the community, supplying social connection, all good things, but not the core mission of the church that the word gives to us. Uh, We need to be people of the word. This is a huge part of what it means to be Christian. We have the Bible as our book and praise God that he preserved these 66 books for us to have today. We can really trust the revelation that he's given us. So there's the biblical canon. I also want to spend just a a few moments introducing you to Constantine. So this is a guy that comes along sort of on the scene in the, the early 300s. And he's sort of the the linchpin between early church history, all the stuff we've been looking at so far, and then the councils that start to meet and the the sort of proliferation of Christianity into the Roman Empire. So I want you to imagine that you're living through what we might call uh, the Great Persecution in 303 AD. So you remember looking at this a few weeks ago as a Christian, you're under the constant threat of imprisonment at death. And imagine that I tell you that within a decade, not only will the persecution be over, but a Christian will be on the throne of the Roman Empire. It seems unbelievable, doesn't it? (laughs) But this is exactly what happened. See, Constantine becomes the emperor of the Roman Empire, sort of in two stages. There's one where he's just got half of it, and then 20 years later, he ends up conquering all of it. But what's even more important is that this guy is a Christian. Now, how does that happen? Well, there's a few factors, including his family upbringing and some of the people in his circle. But probably the the biggest thing is a battle that Constantine is involved in, in 312 AD. He's in battle with one of his rivals, and it looks like he's going to be overcome. He's losing the battle, or he's, he's about to, he thinks he's about to lose the battle. And then Constantine sees a sign in the sky. Apparently he does. The sign that he sees is a cross made of light. And then he hears booming words from heaven in hoc signo winkis. Conquer by this sign. And don't mind my Latin if the pronunciation was wrong. Conquer by this sign. Now he falls asleep that night full of confusion. He's wondering what this all means. And then according to church historian Eusebius... Constantine has a dream that night where he's visited by Jesus, who tells him to use the sign of the cross as a safeguard against his enemies. So he puts, quite literally, a sign that looks like a cross on all of their shields. He goes out to battle, and it seems to work. (laughs) He wins the battle. Uh, Constantine overcomes his stronger rival under the safeguard of Jesus, or so he claims. Now, I'm skeptical of things like this, as you might be as well. But what we can say, at least, is that Constantine had some kind of experience that radically shifted him. Because in the following year, in 313 AD, he publicly outs himself as a follower of Jesus and a follower of the Christian God. And this is absolutely mind-blowing for everyone who lives in the 4th century. And what follows is a series of transformations across the Roman Empire. 
I want to give you just a quick list of those. I won't go into all of them in the detail we did on Sunday. Uh, if you missed it and you want to read about it, uh, you can either look this up or uh, just send me an email and I'll, I'll send you my script. But on the plus side, some of the things that Constantine does is he, together with his sort of ally in the eastern half of the Roman Empire, puts together a law called the Edict of Milan. The Edict of Milan is sort of like a religious toleration law. The persecutions are all over. And now people's right to freedom of religion is to be respected. And this is a good thing for Christians, obviously, but it's actually good for all religions. Really fascinating because some people say that this idea of freedom of religion or freedom of belief comes from people like Thomas Jefferson, who were around just a few centuries ago. But actually, this is a very ancient and Christian idea. And that's just the beginning. He also gives the church tax-exempt status, which, uh, at least in, in many cases, is used to help the church grow again. So it's used to rebuild buildings that were destroyed by the persecution. It's used to help those who were disenfranchised or, or lost a lot during the persecution. It's used to help the poor as well. He gives huge parcels of land to the church, allowances for clergy and widows. He does a massive scale building restoration. Uh, lots of people become Christians during this time, though it is also hard to say whether they're becoming Christians because genuinely they're now glad that it's safe to, to be a Christian or because it's socially and politically advantageous to be a Christian with a, a Christian emperor on the throne. You've also got more of a voice that Christianity has in how the empire runs. And so this brings some cultural changes. The death penalty is restricted. Penalties on debtors are diminished. Taxes on the dead, which by the way were a thing, are severely reduced. Adultery is banned. Sunday becomes a day off. To this point in history, it wasn't. And so we have Moses to thank for Saturday and we have Constantine to thank for Sunday. That's the, the modern idea of the weekend. Besides all this, new copies of the Bible are able to be written and, and distributed as well. You'd understand that under persecution, that's a difficult thing, uh, especially when copies of the Bible are being burnt in exchange for protection from persecution. And so it's a good thing that Constantine's able to sponsor that happening. Now, on the negative side, there are some bad things that happen from Constantine being in charge too. And these are bad things for the church. For example, just as the church has more say in the secular world, in the state, the secular world and the state now have more influence over the church as well. So, for example, you've got stacks of people joining the church who have no Christian background and they come up with all sorts of ideas and they get a hearing and it changes some of the things in church. One of those is the idea of veneration of the saints. So having special saints that, that we revere, this is a very Roman Catholic idea today, but it really comes from, has its genesis in at least, the time of Constantine. Not only that, but Constantine himself wants a significant say in the way that churches do things. And you can imagine just how blurry that makes the lines between church and state. Finally as well, Constantine, although he wrote or helped to write the Edict of Milan, the Edict of Toleration, He's also at times very intolerant of other religions. So he makes it illegal for pagan temples to be built in Constantinople 
the new capital that he forms once he has control of the whole empire. Uh, he also gets money to help rebuild Christianity and further Christianity by having pagans and other religions strip their temple buildings of precious stones and metals. So it's sort of like even though he wrote the Edict of Milan, it, he doesn't have to keep it all the time. So Constantine, mixed sort of contribution. Sometimes positive for Christianity, sometimes negative. And I'd ask you just to consider, do you think that on balance his contribution was more positive or more negative? I'd be really interested to hear what you think about that question next week. In fact, we'll start our class by discussing a bit of that. So I look forward to seeing you then. And don't forget, you can check out a few of the other resources on the website too. Thanks very much. See you later.